Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 24, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1. We'll see how far we can go. The title on this is Census, C-E-N-S-U-S, or Census, S-E-N-S-E-S, Census. A little play on words to your ears. Census or senses. And you'll see what this means with regard to David and a time in which a decision he made was a provocation to the Lord. The decision seems to be, but there are also things within this text that imply God's eyes were upon deeper issues of Israel. And David may have been used in this case to forge a purging of the nation. Two tribal groups obviously have been at play, but we have a division in both the northern tribes, which represented Israel, and the southern tribes, which represented Judah. And so we're going to get a, take a peek right now on what the Lord's doing in David's life. Remember, his life is closing. He's in the, uh, the setting of the son of his life right now. And he's trying to be considered of a son who is now being raised up, and he's aware of who that son is. In the next chapter, we find one son remaining who will try his effort, his hand, at stealing the crown. And so a lot of these tensions are going on. It may have some relationship to that, in which the last son in David's household is going to endeavor to uh, take matters into his own hands, as Absalom had done. David realizes that from the time of his correction and his sin years ago, uh, God was merciful. But the truth of the matter is the sword did not depart from his home. And so David may be in a time of strategically trying to figure out when this would end. Does it terminate with his life? Does it follow in succession in Solomon's life? What can I do to prepare either for what may indeed follow after I'm gone, or what is it that I am to do at all, if anything? That can be our situation, too. The unknown can provoke us to not seek the Lord as we ought to, and the known can also provoke us to do things that are quite contrary to the way God wants to accomplish it. It doesn't mean that we simply do nothing. It means that we apply ourselves to the doing of the things that the Lord has given to us. He's given us eyes to see senses to see. He's given us ears to hear, the sense of hearing. And he's given us a heart that he fashions after his will. And so there are other senses, and they can be employed. But these are the three that we know God uses spiritually in combination with the word of God, which is the sword of his spirit. We are plenty equipped. Patience is one of the things that God has high expectations of us to be disciplined in. But he also has high expectations that when it's go, we go. 
and we don't delay. So let's take a look and see what, for us, the Word is showing to our hearts, for our ears to hear, for our eyes to see. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. What anger may have been that which is implied here? We don't know for sure. We just know that on many opportunities, the nation of Israel as a whole was a provocateur of God's love. In other words, turning from God's love, turning to do their own thing, and provoking the Lord in disciplinary actions. We don't know what that is. We do know that just a while ago, several chapters, there was an insurrection that was turned against the one who was basically evicting the chosen one of God, David. So we see that. Was that something that brought the Lord to anger as David moved from Jerusalem to spare the city of calamity? We never heard, per se, God's voice. All we saw was David's heart. Is that the city be spared from any violence and therefore he would leave. But it does not suggest that God was content in his heavenly dwelling place and excited about what had been promoted by Absalom and many who within the area of David's administration had been traitorous. These things are huge with regard to God's desire to have things work out well. And so it's a high calling for both integrity and faithfulness. Could that have been the incident that may be suggested in which God's anger has broiled over? Because remember when the two began to merge, that was both Judah and Israel proper, when they both began to merge to bring David back in, there was some jealousies that were provoked as to what tribal group would do that. David was more closely linked to the tribal group of Judah. And they were the ones that were taking the commission to bring him in. And yet there was protestation from Israel, Ephraim's side, that says, we should do that. On the politics of where we've stood, we should do it. Judah, on the spiritual portion of what we represent, we need to do it. This is what we do. Could that be it? In terms of, was there civil unrest within the two kingdom agencies right now in which God saw something coming? It might suggest that. Or a cleaning of the camp. It might suggest that too. But what about the inciting of David? If David is following God's heart, which we know he did, and his desire is to exercise God's will, which we also know is a part of his character, then how is it that there is a move using David 
to number Israel and Judah? Can we be pawns? Can we be played? And even though that suggests that we at times in the sovereignty of God do not exercise free will, we do. It can just be tricky in how that freedom is exercised. We also know in another recorded area in Chronicles that it gives basically the credit to Satan having been the instrument of moving David, inciting David to do this. And that's an important text because we realize we do have an adversary that can be at the Lord's disposal to both provoke and test the saints. But David right now is going to take the census and some may say, from even your position right now, what's wrong with numbering people? Don't we do that? So one of the things I want to clarify with you is this isn't a national census. It's a military census. There's a difference. The national census could, in fact, be conducted at particular times of the year. We're supposed to have one in our country every 10 years. And so the nation would, from time to time, institute a census to determine the tribal integrity, the health of the tribes. How are we doing out there, you guys? But this seems to be specifically a military one. And so that tells us something that perhaps does in fact show that David in this particular area trying to anticipate the future may have been setting up a precedence that God did not want to have followed by his son, Solomon. He knew that Solomon was going to be the one that would follow him, take over the kingdom. He knew that. He was planning on it. But in what this may suggest, it may be that the supreme God of the universe would say, I don't want a Supreme Court decision on this one, erroring in how people are to understand me, but most importantly, how the military must obey me, and I don't do numbers with them. I'm aware of who they are. I'm aware of what I need and what I don't need, where they are to be and where they ought not be. But I do not need to have an inventory or a census conducted to determine the strength that you have as an executive to do a work that I want credit for. And we've seen that cited before in Judges when there was a man raised up, and you remember his name was Gideon. He didn't think much of himself. And when he finally summoned a courage that was required of him and an army that would follow him, the Lord deliberately said, I'm paring those men down to where the only credit that will be given in this victory is to me. You're going in in weakness. You're not going in in strength. Meaning that numbers dictated the strength of the force to intimidate an enemy, either causing them to turn and run or literally to be annihilated by being overpowered. 
And so this template may be citing all the way back to Gideon, in which God made inference that I don't work with numbers. Because if you go in in the strength of all the men that are showing up right now, you'll get prideful and you will not listen to me. You will not glorify me. And you will completely misunderstand what I want to achieve both in your life, but also how I cause you to trust in me. So these are narratives right now. What else can we cite, though, that perhaps gives us an indication of what David may have known in his heart? May have known in his heart. So we have a couple of passages that I'll take you, and then I'll move you through these verses. I promise you I'll do that. But in Numbers, um, I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 17 first. Deuteronomy 17. And you're going to pick it up with me at verse 15. You shall surely set a king over you, Deuteronomy 17, picking up verse 15, whom the Lord your God chooses. You're going to set a king over you, but I get to choose him. The Lord was aware of already a conspiracy brewing perhaps outside of the knowledge base of David. They didn't have CIA, FBI. They didn't have any of those agencies. Therefore, David could not necessarily have known at all of another conspiracy coming after him. And it says there's no foreigner that's going to be seated there over my people. Verse 16. This is what was the obligation of the kings. Notice, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Verse 17, neither shall you multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests and the Levites. He was to be one, a student of the word, and to take note of what these simple commands implied along with the others that Moses had also passed down. What does it imply? A couple of things. Horses would imply power. The Jewish people were extraordinarily known, really, for their prowess as footmen. They could run. They could run like horses. They didn't need horses. That's how strong they were. And that strong style, if you would, of simplicity as combatants was very confusing to the enemy these where did they come from they run they run like the horses that we ride they're amazing they're daunting they're hitting us with rocks that are killing us and and they're running like horses over us so the horses imply a power that would have been military power. And guess what? For every horse, what would you need? 
a man. So the Lord knew that the inclination for Israel would be to desire what the other nations used. Wow, they've got a howitzer, we've got to have one. Really? Jets? Awesome. Let's have some of those too. Now we've actually as a nation been the innovators of many of the things that today are used in warfare. But we're not the only ones. There are other ones as well who have gotten smart with our technology. It makes war tricky today to conduct it precisely in many ways. But power is one of the things that would be represented. And David would have had an historical understanding of what that meant. And so in this precedence in which the census is being conducted, it leads to the temptation now of what do we need for these guys to stabilize this kingdom when I'm gone? I already know there's competitors for the office, and I already know they're vicious, and I already know that there's traitors among us. What can I do to stabilize the succession of what God has promised me for my future when I'm gone? David had already mismanaged his domestics because he was, in fact, the husband of multiplied wives as well as concubines. And so what does that tell us? That his passion for the Lord had already been divided by his desire for the women. We're not saying he didn't learn a big, tough lesson from it. Most men would. The Lord knows that in that area, especially of the passion that one has a reserve for, it can truly only be for God first and for one person other than him. And so when you see that power multiplied creates vulnerability to pride, when passion multiplied is enacted, it divides the strength that one had and the love that one had for God initially. Solomon, though we are not there yet in the text, will prove that to be true. His heart craved for women ultimately more greatly than his father, and he was moved away from the Lord as a result of that. And so what's the other one that's mentioned here? Gold and silver. This David is actually credited divinely by the Lord because he amassed his fortune for ultimately the heart that he had to see that the Lord could have a temple to be honored in. And he's commended in the text in First Chronicles we looked at yesterday with the men. He had a heart to amass his fortune for the Lord a place for his people to worship God. Is this, inciting these three examples, something that would have been on David's heart, and therefore is he accountable for what he ought not to have done, but what the scriptures are telling us he did do? Now let's look into it. Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba 
and count the people that I may know the number of the people. I need to remind you, this isn't a national census. This is a military accounting. He wants to know how big it is. He is on the gridiron of life right now. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Joab, in this case, is the voice of reason and of conscience. That's all he represents. He's not really a great guy. And actually, his judgment is pending. That will fall under the weight and the adjudication of Solomon. David will tell him what must happen to Joab. However, Joab right now, as we know, like any can be used of the Lord, if the Lord is intending to prevent something that he does not want to happen, he can use any resource of anybody, whether we like him or not. And why is Joab right now being, if you would, a voice piece? Very likely he is truly aware of the historical accounts of how God uses not a lot, but a little. And he very likely is also thinking in his own heart, David, for Pete's sake, when you were just a boy at 16, I was in the army, I was overseeing alongside your brothers, that remarkable act of bravery and courage that was summoned into you because you had a love for God. You trusted in the Lord like none of us did. And we routed the enemy that day because of your courage. You had, in that moment, an epic adventure with God in which we were inspired in our faith to take on an enemy that had taunted us, humiliated us, and had completely disregarded the name of the Lord our God. He may be citing back in those days. Maybe Joab somewhere, and we don't know, junior to David, a little bit older than David, whatever, but he may be citing back to that day saying, that's the pattern, David, that you've followed all your life. Why would you change that now? For what purpose? What good could come of it? The voice of conscience. Census or senses. Conscience is what we would say is an unseen, but very, in fact, special, intact, part of the emotions that the Lord uses us and uses his spirit to convict. In this case, Joab was convicted to tell David, don't do this one. It's breaking the pattern of the way that God runs the military. Don't do this one. I've been involved in your census and the civil front. This is military. Don't do it. Everyone that tries to do it this way is behaving according to the enemy. David, don't multiply horses. Essentially, that's what you're doing. David, you've messed up like a lot of us have. You've multiplied wives. David, you haven't messed up in your gold and silver. Why conclude your career by all of a sudden doing something 
that you think is going to assure how your lineage is going to carry out. Don't do it. But he does say that David and his authority prevailed over the argument that Joab is making. Joab has reassured him, if you have any need in this area, all you have to do is pray. God will give you anything and whomever you need to get the job done when the job requires you to get it done. God's in charge of that, David, remember? He's the one you used to go and pray to. He's the one that you sought the counsel of the seers and the priests over. Remember, you were the one that taught us how to go to the Urim and Thummim to discover the light of God shining in your dark time, to discover when all of the lies of the enemy and even the voices of those closest to you were whispering taunting messages, light and perfection is what you sought from God through the priesthood. Don't do this. And so, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. It's not a national census. It's a military census. Be reminded of that. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Eror on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and towards Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Taptim, Hadshi. They came to Dan, Jan, and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to South Judah as far as Beersheba. And when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So in some of the areas right now, just even in mathematics, we see that this was almost 10 months on tour. Joab being the senior military general, one of the things that we know is that when a general is not there, it does have the implication that there is a vulnerability that the Israelites may, from the perspective of the enemy, invite an attack. And David wouldn't necessarily have, per se, calculated that. You may be curious about how many men are out there, but the enemy's curious how many generals you've got. And so this would have been Job and probably his senior staff that would have gone out and conducted this because they would have had the authority in the minds of the army to obey and to, here I am, here I am, here I am, here we are. And so in essence, the Lord may have said, you've totally made Jerusalem vulnerable and the next person succeeding you potentially a victim. See, the Lord knows how also that even though he's sovereign in protecting, he also allows there to be the forces that are very human and ultimately can attempt to thwart his will. So David's life in this particular venue is becoming complicated by the temptation that he's affording to the enemy to take advantage. What else could be going on in the backside of this? 
well, this son who we have not yet been introduced to as an adversary yet, it's coming, may be in fact now incited to make his plans to take over the kingdom because Joab isn't there any longer to keep his ear to the ground, to keep his hand on the sword. He was a police force, much like we've seen. When you remove a police force, guess what? People don't get better. They don't. They get worse. Hmm. Maybe we need to pay the criminals to be nice guys. And we come up with strategies that are stupid. So in these areas, David has perhaps made himself unnecessarily vulnerable and actually inspired the conspiracy for his kingdom to be challenged once again by a son who sees the power brokers or the military um, generals gone. What's that invite him to do? Think about, huh, I wonder who I can get on my team now. If those guys are out of the way, no longer putting the enemy in check, them now possibly wanting to attack, maybe I can take advantage of this. Something to consider. Almost 10 months. You figure out what happens in that amount of time. In our lives, in our political system, when it's absent of sound leadership, No comment, but we're close to that mark. We're close to that mark. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity. Of your servant for I have done very foolishly. Why is this an important phrase? Because it shows us really David's humility in the face of facing off with God. It says that he was condemned after it had been accomplished. And by the way, that very likely is the way that conviction rolls in a pattern. It's best to be convicted before, but it comes around when it's been accomplished, whatever it was that we did, in which that revelation, are we sensitive towards it? It's harder because things have already been towards the disadvantage when it's the latter. The best is to respond to conviction before. It takes a huge act of compliance when we want to argue based on perhaps our own great idea. But Lord, but Lord. But if the Lord is Lord, and we do have that conviction, then it's right to be able to say, then he shall have his way, and I will be in a better way very soon. David could have waited to see how that would have played out. But I know that part of it is that the bias he has was the voice of the one challenging him, which was Joab. He didn't like Joab. He respected Joab in terms of a military general. Joab was significant. But as one truly that he could have trusted in times past, he found him to be 
very flawed. That's why it's important to be one that can be trusted so that your counsel, when it's time to bring it out, can be accepted. But David right now, nevertheless, can be credited with what many cannot take credit for, and that's why he's sensitive. Oh, it's been done. What might he, been, he might have been thinking at night and praying at night, going, oh, I forgot that scripture. Oh, I forgot that historical incident. Lord, I think I've goofed. What was I thinking? And sometimes the Lord says, well, I'll let you think about that. No, I, what was I thinking? That's why I'm going to let you think about it for about 10 months. You're going to think about it. And then you'll come to terms with it. When it is received by your ears, it's been accomplished what you wanted, you're then going to have an understanding. But David's understanding was really getting right back to God on that point. I've done very foolishly. It's one thing to be called a fool. It's another thing to be able to analyze yourself and say, I've done very foolishly. We all have, haven't we? I have. And I've discovered that in foolishness, though, God has never diminished in his faithfulness. I'm not saying I want to intentionally be a fool just so God can prove mightily his faithfulness. What I'm saying is that, like David, I can certainly say, foolishly I have behaved, and I find God to be overwhelmingly faithful in what he does for me. He transacts grace in spite of what I've done, or in spite of the judgment that certainly could be pending, a remarkable, amazing God. David, inciting this, is now in verse 11, rising up in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things, Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. Notice that, that I may do it to you. And that's God specifically saying that this is what I am going to do and you will be the recipient of it. You know already right now that David is one who loves God's people. And so David right now in hearing this is hearing something specifically that he now needs to make a decision on. Because guess what it says? You have to choose. You have to choose. Gad came to David, told him that he said, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. You know, the prophets had a tough time. <laughs> oh, Lord, I got to go and tell him this? Oy vey. And then I've got to go back after he makes his choice. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress and honesty, having now confessed, having his soul convicted, says, I'm in distress on this one. I don't know what to do. And so please let us fall 
into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. He incorporates what he knows his responsibility is, is for all of the nation right now. What he has done is singular, but he understands that the consequence could be completely over the entire nation. And so he employs both citing for them the mercies of God and for himself saying, I've been there, Lord, when men have come after me. And I would rather have you personally come after me because I know there's mercy. If I'm asking for your people, I know you'll give it. And if I'm asking for me, I've been there when I've received it. And so he's moving in this direction to trust him, even in this very distressful realization that something's going to happen. I can feel it. Haven't you ever had that feeling, something's going to happen, I can feel it. Usually for me, it's a sickness of some kind. The flu is absolutely one of the things that creates great tension in me because I tell the Lord, no, Lord, not now, not this time, not that way. And soon I begin to appeal to the Lord for mercy. And for me, he gives it in a particular way. I'm just citing a practical thing for me, a great distress on me. I've seen the Lord merciful to me in other situations which completely were the result of faults that I've made, foolishness that I've given into. And so let us fall into the hand of the Lord. He's got to choose. Because you already saw, Lord, my choice wasn't so good. You choose. And so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died and whom the angels stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it. The Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. This is an incredible statement. He's saying, blot me out, essentially. I am responsible for this. They are your sheep. You're still merciful. I believe in that. But if I must, and it is my desire to do so, blot me out in my lineage. And it's actually a wonderful, beautiful resignation of David saying, my life for theirs. What's he representing? Well, imperfectly, but on a perfect side, the life that Jesus gave up for a people that God would say, I don't want any to perish. And Jesus said, then take me, agreeing with his father ultimately. God being the son of God, Jesus Christ, the greater than David. And David right now is invoking literally his life to be a substitute for the consequence that is going to be right now instituted if there wasn't a relenting 
But it's that the Lord literally seems to have had his ear open, ready to hear David saying, what is it worth to you, David? What is it worth to you? Can I count on you? You wanted to count men. Can I count on you to have my heart for a people that I do love? And David offers himself and his house. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arana went out, bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice, threshing implements, and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor of the oxen for the 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings so the Lord heeded the prayers of the land, or for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Closing. Back in Numbers 31, the only time that we saw a numbering of the military was instituted by Moses from a battle that had been engaged in. And the census was not how strong were they going into it, it was how many came back from it. The report came from those who represented the armies who had moved against the enemies that Moses had dispatched, and this was the word. They've all returned. We haven't lost one of them. David wanted to have a census to determine how he could obtain victory, whether it was by the loss of thousands or a few. He wanted to have an inspiration that dealt with numbers. Moses was teaching the people to trust in God for those who would return and not die, as opposed to the strength of those who would go in as a force but may die. And that's the way that God develops the trust. And on that picture, David defied what would be precedence. There were people that were casualties, even in engagements that David was a part of. But the principle doesn't change just because, at times, consequences become apparent. God still has a means by teaching others how we trust in him when it's against the odds. And what we do today is we count the casualties. We don't count the survivors. But they came back. A lot of them came back. When you look at the numbers, something like 1,500,000 to 145,000, Israel having the larger, Judah having the second, combined over a million 
500 or 670,000, something like that. And you consider that in this judgment, 70,000 military men perished. It's about 96% that didn't. 4% that did. David was wise in saying, I don't know what to do. I'm distressed. 70,000 deaths sounds a lot. But to the military that was just cited, roughly, it's like, wow, we came back unscathed. We're not told who those 70,000 were, but I believe that in the mercies of God, these were probably the younger men that didn't have sons or wives. It's conjecture. Can't prove it to you. But David appealed that on behalf of the consequence that was coming, that he would trust the Lord in, mercies would be available. Though every life is precious, it is less of a hardship to a nation to lose a single man than it is a family man. It's just a suggestion. And when you look at it being about 4%, it is in fact an incredible act of mercy from God to save David and to save his people numerically. The other thing that you need to know that is actually wonderful in this as well is that David is one who has found himself now completing the consequence of acknowledgement of his sin by doing what? Investing. Remember we said kings aren't to multiply silver and gold. Silver and gold. What does David just say? I know you want to do this. I know it's on your land and you're making provision for this to go real easy for me but I really want to go big for God. I want to buy your oxen. I want to buy the land. I want to buy the wood. I want it all to go as an expression of my love for the Lord. And historically, what you need to know is the place that he's buying right now would be qualified later as a section of or a portion mound area of Mount Moriah, which is credited to Abraham for sacrificing a willing heart to take his son Isaac, whom had been given to him. It would be very likely also the place in which the Temple Mount will be, the place where the temple will be erected. You can look at those details, rather intriguing. On this spot, grace and mercy shine through in the life of a king, truly, that as his years are declining and as he erred in the census, he came to his senses. We can err in trying to account for how God's going to do something. But we can also come back and say, oh, what was I thinking? You were going to do it your way. Of course, you always want to do it your way. What was I thinking, Lord? Eyes that I might see, ears that I might hear, a heart that's fashioned after your will. Let me learn from the word. And let me trust in you. And if it costs me my life in trusting you, I'll be good with that. Because you're a good God, and I know where I'm going. But as for the people, mercy upon them, Lord. Oh, Lord, 4%. My heart is with them. But mercy, Lord, you showed. It could have been the seven years of famine and taken out. 500,000 of them, a million of them, decimated. 
It could have been enemies in pursuit of that many or more decimated. But I let you choose and you chose a plague that only lasted as long as the plague needed to last. And I came to terms and you gave me your terms. And I concluded this wiser and able now to wisely govern and counsel my son who will carry on the lineage. 